Good afternoon. I'm Jim McKay speaking to you live at this moment from ABC headquarters just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. The peace of what is what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning about 5 o'clock. In 1972, West Germany was preparing to host the upcoming Olympics in the city of Munich. They hired a police psychologist named Dr. George Seabear to come up with a list of worst-case scenarios for the Games. He surveyed global conflicts, terrorist groups, and European politics, and began laying out various catastrophes. Perhaps a Swedish right-wing militia will hijack an airliner and crash it into Olympic Stadium. He developed 26 different possible situations. In his 21st scenario, he imagined a scene that would begin at 5 o'clock in the morning. A dozen Palestinian terrorists with the Black September group, armed to the teeth, would climb over the Olympic Village's perimeter fence, break into the building where the Israeli delegation was sleeping, kill a few Israeli athletes to terrify the rest into submission, and then use the remaining hostages to demand the release of prisoners and a plane to fly out of Germany. If they couldn't accomplish that, they would happily die trying rather than ever surrender in order to turn the games into a political stunt against Israel. In his hypothetical Scenario 21, Dr. Seabear got really only one thing wrong, that the attack started at 4.30 a.m., not 5. Just about every other detail, though, he got correct. In a 20-hour-long crisis beginning on September 5, 1972, Palestinian terrorists murdered 11 Israeli athletes and one West German police officer. Lax security, a disastrous rescue attempt, terror, torture, and murder marked what the Germans had insisted would be the global event that would finally shake off the stain of Hitler and Nazism. The peaceful 72 Olympics would atone for Hitler's 1936 games. But as Golda Meir would point out, with much irony and even more frustration and anger, Jews had once again been murdered on German soil. So the 1972 Olympics, that's today's story. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. In a 2002 Sports Illustrated retrospective, the journalist Alexander Wolf itemized the lax security measures that George Sieber cataloged in his 21st scenario. The Israeli delegation was housed in a quiet corner of the Olympic Village, close to a side entrance. They were put in a vulnerable ground floor apartment that connected to the higher floor ones. The perimeter fence was just a little over six feet high and easily scalable, which drunken athletes took advantage of to skirt around security at the village's main entrance. Not wanting to look like goose-stepping thugs, the Olympics refused to issue weapons to the police, who were on high alert for ticket fraud and carried only walkie-talkies. During the games itself, Wolf quotes the police security supervisor who cut back their nighttime patrols, quote, at night nothing happens, end quote. So determined were they to stage a peaceful, open, and inclusive Olympic Games that the West Germans chose to forego security. They told Dr. Seabear that his 26 scenarios, including number 21, were just too scary to contemplate. But Scenario 21 wasn't too scary for one of the most ruthless terrorist groups out there, Black September, who not only contemplated, but carried out the exact scenario. The Palestinian group had been created in the wake of the Jordanian Civil War, 
and had metastasized into an ultra-violent faction of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. They were out to punish those who made Saws the enemies of the Palestinian people, with Jordan, Israel, and the West in general at the top of the list. The Olympics drew their ire for rejecting the PLO's request to participate in the Games, which was one of the few good calls the Germans made throughout this whole ordeal. Black September's goal was ostensibly the release of more than 200 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, and other German terrorists being held there. Though the hand-picked team of eight who infiltrated the Olympic Village were very aware that this whole operation might end in their deaths. The attack took place in three stages that began in the early morning of September 5th, 1972. The initial attack at the Israeli delegation's apartments, then the negotiations, and then the attempted rescue operation at the airport that went horribly wrong. At every stage, we are confronted with the extraordinary incompetence of the German authorities to handle the situation. Although, in their defense, Germany didn't have a special counterterrorism force, like the Navy SEALs or the Sayart Matkal. It was mostly just a squad of local cops who had never confronted a situation like this before. This is building number 31. And we're moving in now on the windows behind which, at this moment, eight or nine terrified living human beings are being held prisoner. Just past 4.30 a.m., Israeli wrestling judge Yosef Gutfreund was woken up by a sound at the door to his apartment. As he got up to have a look, the door began to open, and he saw men armed with assault rifles trying to get in. He yelled out to his roommates and threw himself against the door, holding it closed. Chaos broke out. Gutfreund bought enough seconds for one of the weightlifting coaches to break a window and jump out. A wrestling coach, Moshe Weinberg, came to the door to help. But it was too late. The terrorists burst in, shooting Weinberg in the cheek and grabbing Gutfreund hostage. When Weinberg claimed that no one in their apartment was Israeli, the terrorists forced him to show them where in the building the Jews were. He led them to the wrestlers' rooms, hoping that the commotion had woken up the strong athletes and given them time to prepare a fight. But it hadn't. They were all captured. As the terrorists led the hostages back to their coach's room, Weinberg attacked them again. He wounded two of the terrorists, again giving time for one of the athletes to escape. But it cost him his life. Moshe Weinberg was shot dead. Then weightlifter Yosef Romano also attacked the squad and also managed to wound one of the terrorists. He too was murdered. Black September now had nine Israeli hostages crammed into a room, with the murdered Yosef Romano lying on the floor to let them know what would happen if anyone else tried to fight back. The Day of Terror was just a few minutes old. The few Israeli athletes who escaped the initial mayhem quickly spread the word, and German police were soon on the scene outside the apartment. The terrorists threw coach Moshe Weinberg's body out of the front door and demanded the release of prisoners in Israel and Germany in an airplane to get them back to the Middle East. Thus was the beginning of negotiations. The Israelis didn't want to negotiate. They had already learned that lesson. Instead, the Sayeret Matkal sprang into action to prepare a rescue operation, but Germany reportedly wouldn't let them into the country. Only two Israeli counterterrorism experts were allowed at the scene, and then only to observe, not act. The German government wanted to resolve the situation quickly, fully aware of how it looked to have Jewish hostages on German soil. The terrorists refused all of Germany's counteroffers, including unlimited amounts of money to just leave. They didn't come here for money. Meanwhile, 
Three dozen armed German police with no experience in hostage rescue surrounded the Israelis' apartment building. But Germany hadn't effectively sealed off the area, and the news media were allowed to film the scene from the buildings across the street. We are told that there are men with guns beginning to train those guns on the rooms where the two heads were sticking out a moment ago of the Arab guerrilla lookouts. I don't... I'm not sure these men have guns or, or cameras. That, that's a gun, all right. One man with binoculars, another with a gun. Whether they have a line of fire, whether they'll have to sneak up to the corner. This is happening now, if you can possibly believe that. The, the terrorists watched live on TV as the German police crept into position to ambush them. It was at this point that we get the most famous, undeniably creepy photo from the 72 Olympics. One of the terrorists, wearing a full face hoodie, peering over the edge of the balcony. After threatening to kill some of the nine hostages, the police were forced to back off. It was back to square one. Two Israeli hostages were brought to the window to demonstrate proof of life to the German police. One of them was beaten with an AK-47, again live on TV. Two high-ranking German government officials, one of them the Minister of the Interior, were briefly allowed in the apartment. They noted that the Israelis were in bad shape, beaten, tortured, one of them shot in the shoulder, exhausted. It had now been 12 hours since the start of the attack, and Yosef Romano's body still lay on the floor in front of them. During those first 12 hours, the Olympics did not, as you might imagine, come to a halt. Far from it. Determined to preserve the image of their first Olympics since the Nazi era as one of peace and unity, the Germans insisted that the games go on. Although the athletes close to the building knew what was happening and watched with trepidation, those elsewhere weren't told and continued competing in a variety of events. It wasn't until late in the afternoon that the games were shut down. By then, the Germans had brought in two military helicopters and staged a Boeing 727 airliner at a NATO airbase nearby. But they hit on another idea to ambush Black September. To get to the helicopters that would take them to the airport, the terrorists and their hostages would have to walk through an underground garage. The police lay in wait behind parked cars. But a few of the terrorists demanded to walk through first, accompanied by the Munich police chief, the mayor of the Olympic Village, and the German Minister of Interior. As they approached a line of parked cars, the untrained police made a bunch of noise trying to crawl backwards. Wised up to yet another ambush, the terrorists now demanded that a bus drive them and their hostages through the garage. The Germans agreed. All of this played out on international TV. The Germans still had one more idea for an ambush. Take out the terrorists at the airport. At 10 p.m., the murderers and their nine hostages had left the Olympic Village and got on the helicopters. At the airport, the Germans laid out a two-part plan. On the airplane were German police dressed as a flight crew, who would overpower the two terrorists who were to board the plane first to check it out. Then outside, the Germans stationed five snipers, who would simultaneously take out the rest of the squad. But here's the problem. Actually, there were several problems. All recounted in Alexander Wolf's Sports Illustrated article. First of all, the snipers weren't actually snipers. They were regular cops, some of them riot police, who liked to practice sharpshooting on the weekend, so they got assigned the job. Their rifles were fine for sport, 
not so much for the extreme agility and precision required for a combat operation like this one. And while plenty more police were being sent in armored personnel carriers, those were stuck in traffic. A couple were even dispatched to the wrong airport. And the police waiting inside the airplane aborted their plan 15 minutes before the helicopters landed, worried that the 17 of them wouldn't be able to overpower the two terrorists. And perhaps worst of all, there weren't enough snipers. The Germans at the airport thought there were only five terrorists when there were actually eight. In all the hours of preparation, no one had communicated the correct number to the airport squad. The entire setup was a disaster waiting to happen. And it did. The latest word we get from the airport is that, quote, all hell is broken loose out there, that there is still shooting going on, that there is a report of a burning helicopter. The two helicopters with four pilots, nine Israeli hostages, and eight Black September terrorists landed at the airport outside Munich at 10.35 p.m. Two terrorists went off to inspect the airplane. By then, the police inside had left. The empty aircraft was an obvious signal that the Germans had no intention of letting the terrorists take off. As the two ran back towards the helicopters to warn the others, the order was given to the snipers to open fire. The next few minutes was a desperate gun battle. The snipers took out three of the eight terrorists, two dead and one wounded. The remaining terrorists took cover behind the helicopters, the Israeli captives still bound on board. They shot out the lights, plunging the airport into darkness. A German police officer was killed. And then, for the next hour, all was mostly quiet as each side dug in. At this point, the Germans did bring in a more highly trained assault squad, but they ended up at the complete other end of the runway, more than a mile away, and never made it into the fight. As the hour approached midnight, the armored vehicles that had been stuck in traffic finally arrived, and both the Germans and Black September were determined to fight to the end. Things happened very quickly, and there were different reports about what exactly happened when. But within moments, one of the terrorists turned his assault rifle on the helpless Israelis strapped together in the back of one of the helicopters. It seems that during the firefight, they had been trying to loosen their ropes, but weren't able to. Weightlifter Zev Friedman, weightlifting judge Yaakov Springer, and wrestler Eliezer Halfin were killed instantly. Weightlifter David Berger was wounded by two gunshots. The terrorist jumped from the helicopter and tossed a grenade into the cockpit. He was then killed by police fire. Four of the eight terrorists were now down. A similar scene was playing out at the other helicopter. Two more terrorists were killed, including their leader, but another Black September member also turned his gun on the five remaining Israeli hostages. The wrestling judge, Josef Gutfreund, who first tried to prevent the terrorists from entering the apartment, was killed, along with shooting coach Kehat Shor, wrestler Mark Slavin, fencing coach Andre Spitzer, and track coach Amitsur Shapira. Back at the first helicopter, the grenade ignited the fuel tank, setting the entire thing ablaze. It was then that David Berger died, probably from smoke inhalation, the 11th and final Israeli murdered that day. One more terrorist was killed, and three were captured alive. What began at 4.30 a.m. was over by 12.30 a.m. early the next day on September 6th. Back in Israel, Golda Meir received news that quickly flashed around the world. The rescue operation had been a huge success. All the hostages had been freed. But within a couple hours, the International Olympic Committee issued a correction, as reported by Jim McKay with ABC News. You know, when 
I was a kid, my father used to say, our greatest hopes and our worst fears are mm -hmm. seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They've now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms this mo yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. Israel was utterly devastated. Those in the know were dumbfounded by the bottomless well of mistakes made by the German police. And that quickly turned to anger when a couple days later the five dead terrorists were sent to Libya, buried there as military heroes. A month later, the three surviving terrorists were released from prison after a Lufthansa airplane was hijacked from Syria to Germany. But according to a 1999 documentary film about the Olympics massacre, called One Day in September, as recounted by the British journalist Jason Burke, there were some odd things about that particular hijacking. For instance, there were only 11 people on board the whole plane, and they were all men. And when the terrorists demanded the release of their Black September colleagues, it only took the West German government a few hours to agree. It was almost like they knew it was going to happen. And it turns out that a variety of German, Israeli, and Palestinian sources point to an orchestrated deal in exchange for swearing off any future reprisals against Germany for killing their comrades, Black September would be allowed to hijack an airliner, provided there were no women and children on board. The released prisoners were flown to Libya, and they too were treated as heroes, with a rousing press conference broadcasting their wonderful achievement all over the world. The games were suspended for a day and a half. Although there was a brief discussion about closing the Olympics, the committee decided to continue, to not let terrorism destroy an event supposed to be focused on international cooperation, a decision to which Israel agreed. But later in the day on September 6th, a memorial service was held at the main stadium, with more than 80,000 people and athletes in attendance. Israel sent several family members of their murdered athletes to represent. But the Olympics would still claim one more life, one of the athlete's cousins died of a heart attack in the middle of the ceremony. After the ceremony, Israel's team headed home. So did the Jewish-American swimmer Mark Spitz, who set a record with seven gold medals at those games, but was concerned that he could be kidnapped. All other Jewish athletes who stayed were placed under guard. The entire Egyptian team left, fearing that they could be targeted for retaliation. And other individual athletes left of their own volition, their desire to compete tainted by the blatant murder of their fellow athletes. It would take decades for all these details to come out. Germany suppressed the public release of reports detailing their police failures, lax security, and the torture endured by the Israeli hostages, and the shady aftermath. It was the family members of the athletes, many of whom are still alive today, who have pushed for information over the years, through lawsuits, public shaming, and demands for proper memorialization. Not wanting to alienate the Arab countries, the, the Olympics consistently refused a permanent memorial to the Israelis. It wasn't until the 2016 Olympics in Rio de Janeiro that there was an official commemoration ceremony. It was at the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo that the opening ceremonies included, for the very first time, a moment of silence. Golda Meir was beyond livid. The writer Eleanor Burkett writes that, quote, To friends, Golda spoke of the horror of watching Jews being blindfolded and massacred again on German soil, while the rest of the world played volleyball, 
and of the agonizing image of Jews being carried home in coffins while the Olympic bands played on, end quote. Golda just couldn't understand the world's reaction, their intransigence in the face of constant attacks on Jews and Israelis. Writes Burkett, quote, A tradition of terrorism was taking root, and the international community had no strategy for dealing with it, indeed was encouraging it by caving in to terrorist blackmail, end quote. Of course, the Munich Olympics changed everything, perhaps more so than any terrorist attack until September 11th. From now on, every Olympics would be a massive security operation. Within weeks of Munich, Germany set up a special counterterrorism assault force, GSG-9, that would become one of the most highly respected in the world today. But in the meantime, Golda Meir watched the terrorists' press conferences and their bragging and their heroic welcomes and knew that it was up to Israel to strike back. Two days after Munich, Israel bombed PLO bases in Syria and Lebanon. But Golda knew that wasn't enough to prevent this horrific kind of blackmail. In her view, everyone involved with Munich needed to pay to prevent them from carrying out more attacks. They were about to face the wrath of Israel, or better yet, the wrath of God. That's next time. As always, I'm at jewodunknow.com, and my email is jewodunknowpodcast at gmail.com. Hope you've been enjoying this season on Israel. Hope you're learning some good stuff. Lehitraot. See you later.